Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Hello, Nisa. How are you doing today? Hi, Lisa. I'm good. We are back this week with another special kind of episode, one that dovetails nicely with the special populations series that we just wrapped up, right? That's right. So this is another um, a couple of episodes that have been brought to you by the Region 5 RTAC, continuing the education, trauma education during COVID times, quarantines. Um, And we have a special guest here with us today. We're going to let her tell us a little bit about herself. But we have Brittany Smith with us here. And she is not a nurse. Um, She's a teacher. And she's going to tell us what she teaches and who she teaches and um, why she is on a nursing podcast. Um, But Brittany, before you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, so our podcast is called the Q Word Podcast because in nursing we have a superstition about saying a certain word that begins with Q, um, (laughs) that when we say that word, it brings on all kinds of bad luck and bad things. Do you guys have anything like that in teaching? Do you have any superstitions? Do you say that word or is it, is there anything that correlates in, in education or... I I don't think we're as cool as y'all, honestly. We don't have a word like that. You know, we, we could say, you know, don't get too hot at recess, but everything's pretty straight on. <laughs> All right, that's great. Well, we're glad that you don't have a danger word like we do because... We don't have a danger word. That's good. That is <laughs> well, good. Now, like, every time the Q word slips out of our mouth in any context, we, like, have to throw salt <laughs> over our shoulders and cross our fingers because we're afraid that we're going to call havoc down on us. That's bringing the curse. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, hello, Brittany. It is lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for coming. And tell us all about what you do, who you teach, um, what ages and what uh, and why we brought you on to a nursing podcast. Okay, so a little bit of background. I have a bachelor's in counseling. So I actually was a counselor on a pediatric a psychiatric unit for about a year. Um, and working there was, it. that's a really difficult setting to be totally transparent. Uh, in a, the medical side of things, I just saw a lot of young kids coming in and being served in a setting that was really tough, lots of restrictions. It just kind of gave me a vision for what would that look like if we were to catch some of these kids before they get to this type of restrictive setting. So I went back to school and I added on and I got my teacher certificate. I uh, work especially with emotional disabilities, but that varies. That's a really big umbrella. The kids that really fall under this umbrella are students with autism, students that have emotional disabilities, students that have really intense hyperattention that looks like ADHD or ADD. Um, We even have some occasional pediatric bipolar, schizophrenia, anything in the classroom that you can think of. I've I've had it at some point. I've worked in a transition program before, and then I switched to elementary school. And the reason why I'm on a nursing show is 
our school district had a school shooting and I was struck very deeply by it. So one of my students um, was in the classroom that was outside at the time. And sadly, uh, one of his classmates passed away. He was able to make it inside, but he's pretty mid-functioning autism. And it it kind of haunted me, the fact that it was, from what I understand, it was really difficult to get him inside. Um, he didn't understand what was happening. And then when emergency services got there, um, he was traumatized. And it, it, he, you know, it became a physical, a physical thing that he ended up needing some support. And a lot of the kids that were involved uh, needed support. It, it gave me a, a passion for what would it look like if we were all a team and we were all educated and we all sought to be educated and informed on traumatic situations for our special needs populations and how do you come together to approach uh, even adults and students with disabilities outside of school or worse inside of school and what does that look and sound like because of that I started working with some local law enforcement I incorporated a lot of that into my classroom. I created an emergency plan. That's kind of where it started. Um, and the biggest thing was I can educate my students, my autism students. I can practice. I can do all the right things. But once they go out of my classroom or they're at Walmart or at a store, I'm not able to help them at that point. So that would be making sure that the other side is educated as well so that we're all moving like a very well-oiled wheel going in the right direction in the same direction. Very good. So how long has this journey been for you? Um, the school shooting was in 2016. Um, so it's been about, uh, since I would say since then, so about four years. Um, but long before then, I have a, a very big passion for our special needs population and the medical side of things. If I had not been a teacher, I would have become a nurse. So gotcha. it's always tied together for me in a, in a powerful way. So we, we brought you because of your experience and because of the resources that you have put together and because of your very obvious passion. And so we want to talk about what it's like. We often deal in the emergency room and in the pre-hospital setting with uh, students and even adults, children and even adults who have the diagnoses that you mentioned, usually on a one-on-one -on -one setting when they're ill or injured. But there would be some very unique and unusual situations where it could be, um, you know, for instance, I can think of uh, uh, one time where we had a school bus full of children, the bus driver actually became incapacitated and he wrecked the bus. And so we had an entire school bus full of children come into our emergency department. Now imagine that it was your class on a field trip and that's the school bus full of children that come now into my emergency department that I'm having to care for. And I need to know not just the trauma aspect of it, but also all of their special needs on top of that. Or, you know, imagine that there's a fire in your school and now pre-hospital providers have to come in and care for your students. Um, and so this is kind of what we want to talk about and find out what are some of the best ways to care for your student population. And so yeah, how do you, how would a hospital triage 
a group of students that may all have very unique special needs that um, that come in at the same time. I could see that really causing a lot of chaos and how do you know when students don't react, when, when people don't react in, let's say, predictable or um, maybe more familiar ways, um, how, do you, how do you best help them not only medically, but psychologically get through that? that that's got to be a very complicated situation yeah. to deal with. That, and that's what we're going to talk about. Brittany would be the resource that we would go to, but she couldn't be in every single room all the time. <laughs> oh, we're so, going to distribute her a personal home number and her turn there you go. and <laughs> Please all that do that. Stuff so that. Yeah, so people can call her on a dime. <laughs> so to start, could you just give us a reminder of uh, just kind of a, a couple of uh, sentences about what each of these diagnoses mean? So like, give us a reminder about autism, ADHD, oppositional define, uh, defiant, oppositional... Defiant disorder. disorder. Defiant yeah. disorder. Opposition. <laughs> this is the best. Disorder. <laughs> and then bipolar, pediatric bipolar, pediatric, or you said childhood bipolar, childhood schizophrenia. Pediatric bipolar. Okay. Um, so I'll start with autism. That is becoming probably my most common disability that I work with in a behavior setting, um, in the gen ed setting. It, so autism falls under a really big umbrella. They now call it, um, person with autism. So that, that can cover a lot of things. We used to, there used to be several different names for it, but you know, as the DSM gets, it pretty much writes itself a new one every year. They have recently talked about some of the things that you would see with a person with autism or sensory processing. You have what we call a Stemming is one of the things that is the most common. You'll see a hand flapping. You'll see noises, chittering. Uh, a lot of times the, there's a lot of like jerky movements. It's a very monotone voice. Eye contact is usually not really common unless you're really high functioning. And so autism has what we call a low functioning autism. And that's someone who's almost, who's nonverbal. So it's not a lack of intelligence as much as it's what they know now is the their brain is wired in such a way that it's just misfiring constantly. And I even listened to a geneticist once that talked about it as all of this information's in your brain and you have absolutely no way to teach it to come out of your mouth. So it, it, imagine the frustration that that would be anyway. And then you have your really high-functioning autism, which is usually really intelligent. You still might find that monotone voice. You'll see a lot of hygiene issues. A lot of times it's actually probably people that might not even know they have autism or high-functioning autism, and they just have coped with it their entire life and been the outcast, when really it actually could be a, a case of really high-functioning autism that has just never been diagnosed. Um, ADD and ADHD is attention deficit disorder, which is where your energy is actually a little lower, and then you have your ADHD, which is your hyper attention. And that's someone who's constantly buzzing around, touching, getting up, moving. I like to say, think about it as uh, the movie Up. And there's the dog that every time he saw a squirrel, he would go, squirrel! That's mm -hmm. that's that person. And um, many of us probably say that's us too. <laughs> um, pediatric bipolar is uh, bipolar for kids. It's really rare, but it does happen, and it's just where you have manic episodes, and you can almost chart it on a cycle of uh, really high periods, really low periods, 
Um, it's not really common because uh, doctors don't like to diagnose someone that young. Usually it's not under 13 with bipolar, but it, I've had, definitely had one before. You have your schizophrenia. Like I said, still really rare in children, but it does happen. And that is, I mean, I've, you can have a full-blown hallucinations, multiple personalities. And then the other personal favorite of mine is oppositional defiant disorder, characterized by absolute noncompliance. So you'll ask them to do something, even in a safety setting, and they're just not going to do it because... It either doesn't benefit them or they just don't want to because you asked them to. A lot of our ODD students end up having conduct disorder, which is characterized, sadly, by eventual incarceration and theft. So it's, you usually see a, a similar characteristics from an oppositional defiant into conduct disorder. That's a, these are both new terms. I, I wasn't familiar with either of these um, diagnoses. Um. I have found in personal experience that you see ODD often in children under 13. You'll see conduct disorder outside of 13 and up. But I will, um, I used to do like tutoring at the juvenile center. That's where you'll usually find your kids with conduct disorder. It's just uh, the likelihood of becoming involved in illegal activity is really high, sadly. So I have a follow-up question about the autism. Um, I read a lot in your the material that you sent us ahead of time about the stimming, and the mm-hmm. stimming is S-T-I-M-M-I-N-G, stimming. Yes. Um, which, so what is the, what is the, is there a purpose to the stimming? Is it, uh, is it a, like a, is it like a coping or is yes. it? Yes. So stimming is a, it's a sensory portion of autism but the what we've it you know when you track the data I would say stimming is mostly self-soothing it's also a way to uh, let out excess energy um, including energy that comes from feeling anxious feeling upset or agitated and then sometimes it's purely for pleasure Um, you know it's a way to calm yourself but it also feels really nice Um, I had a student before that spun in circles and I mean like spinning really hard um, to the point that we were really concerned that she was going to have a, a permanent side effects from the spinning. Um, we sought out some different medical advice on how to help her with that, but uh, she would spin for as long as we would let her. And it, it was just the way that she self-soothed and the, she would find a lot of satisfaction in it. Um, so I would definitely say it, it it, it looks many different ways, but it all comes back down to uh, they're really coping. It is just a coping skill that's not always safe or healthy. So if you saw, if as a nurse, I saw an autistic patient who was, let's say, hand flapping or rocking or pacing, that would be an indication to me that they were maybe feeling anxious or stressed. Yes. And that they had found a way to cope with it. And if it wasn't yes. something like the spinning, if it's hand flapping, then that's not something that's dangerous. Then no. I would just want to leave them alone and let them use their yes. coping mechanism. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and sometimes when you disrupt a stem, uh, you can have an agitated lash out. I've been hit before, spit, bit, uh, scratched. 
it, it's almost like they're watching their favorite movie or they're doing their favorite thing and you literally abruptly stop it. It causes agitation. Now, some kids are really great about stopping. So I always set a timer. And if you want to stem, we're going to stem at this time. So I, usually what I teach is a, uh, a time to do it. And then when the timer rings, we stop. So if you ever needed that person to stop so that you could do a physical or you could do something like that, you could even set a timer on your phone that says, I'm going to let you finish this for a minute. And when you hear this ringer, you're going to know that it's time to stop. Even a nonverbal autism student would very much understand what you were saying. I live in Boston and there's a, um, a gentleman who lives in the area who suffers from Tourette's mm-hmm. um, and his coping mechanism, especially when he's on the T, um, is to bite his arm when yes. he, um, when I see, he, uh, he, so he rocks, so he, sits, he stims, but he bites his arm and I've seen, I know him, I've been around him for years, know enough to be like, yo, what's up? You know what I mean? That kind of yeah. thing and, and no problem. But I've seen a lot of other people near who don't know that and they see him biting his arm and they believe it's a self-harm behavior. And I've seen them talk to police or, you know what I mean? Some freak out, but I think from, in most cases they're trying to be helpful. Yes. Uh, So Tourette's, does that fall on the same spectrum? It It does actually. Tourette's, Tourette's is under the autism umbrella. It used to not be, um, but now it is. And Tourette's is very much, uh, it's very tied into some of the compulsive tendencies. So um, it, I always have the, like, the internal motto of if the stem is not harmful, it can continue on. If it is harmful to the person or others, it has to stop. Um, and So what I see is him pushing his open mouth against his forearm. Yeah. What others see is him trying to bite his own flesh. I know he's just muffling. I've I've learned it's just his best way of muffling his um, outbursts, but others don't. And so listening to what you're saying now, I wonder how much more damage. And I have intervened. I've made eye contact with people who I've seen see him and react weird. Now I'm like, it's cool. It's cool. Do you know what I mean? And Yes. But uh, what more damage could be done to... Uh, gentleman like that who clearly has figured out his coping mechanism yeah because he's forced to live in a city and he has to ride public transportation and so it obviously makes him anxious and so this is his way of doing with it but then when he goes to the emergency room let's say there is an emergency how is it that a nurse can differentiate between well, this is a type of behavior that is him is normal for him and is actually a in many ways, I'm assuming a healthy coping mechanism. He's figured out how to manage it. As long as he doesn't break skin. And my only concern is in COVID. Maybe this spit on the arm is a little bit more concerning. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I I think for me, I, I would just, it's the power of words. I would ask him, I'm not sure what you're doing. Could you explain it to me? And if it's someone who's nonverbal, you can always... Uh, you know, have like picture cards of hurt or not hurt, you know, are you hurt right now or are you not hurt? And usually if they pick not hurt, cause you can do the different cards, then you'll know that this is just a, a soothing thing. And then if they're not breaking the skin, I would not intervene with that. What are some other do's and don'ts for um, autism children or autism adults? Um, intense eye contact. Uh, 
you know, for us, looking in each other in the eyes is respectful. Um, it's a way to show you that I'm listening, that I'm tuned into what you're saying. But for someone with autism, sometimes that is really overwhelming. And it's, it's almost like, uh, a slap, like, what are you doing staring at me? What have I done? And, you know, they could be thinking about something totally different and why you're staring at them. That can be very uncomfortable. Um, so sometimes I always, I'll look to maybe the side of their face or to the forehead as I'm asking certain questions. Um, and then when I need them to really listen to me, I do something, uh, it's really quick, but I'll say, Hey, what's the color of my shirt? And they'll tell me really fast and then I'll ask my question. And that way I know I have their, their attention really quickly. And then I, I, they got the response. Um, ABA therapy is a great tool, but that's applied behavior analysis. And you can ask, Hey, what's the color of my hair? How old are you? What's the color of your shirt? Really quick, easy questions will bring their attention to something really quickly. And then you ask the really important question right after, like, uh, where do you hurt? Or can you tell me what happened? Or you're bleeding. Can you show me where? Something like that would be helpful. It sort of opens the door for them. It, it, it does. It, it gives them something to hold, uh, something cognitively familiar to hold on to that will then allow yes. them to slide into something a little less comfortable. Yes. That is a great, great tip. I love mm, that. That's very yeah. good. And there's a fancy word for that. Uh, I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do fancy words here on the Keyword Podcast. I have no fancy words. <laughs> <laughs> that works for us. I like it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So if a, if a nurse is assessing a child with autism or, or an adult with autism, would there be physical findings or would there be drug interactions or other medical considerations, physical things that they would need to consider that would be different than a child or an adult that does not have autism? Yes. There would be two things. Um, bruising is really common because they're pickers. A lot of my autism awesome students are, they're pickers. Um, I have friends that are pickers who are not autistic. <laughs> um, but I would say the picking level can be a stem for some kids, especially, especially as they start getting like acne and they, they'll get a scratch on their arm and then they're obsessed with it. And a lot of times they'll get infected. Staph infections, huge. I always have to keep a really close eye on scratches and wounds because in a heartbeat, I'll see what looks like staph infection. Example, last year I had a student. He was, he burned himself on the oven at home and he came to school and he, uh, he had it covered up in his homemade bandage. So <laughs> I made him show me just because I wanted to see it and it smelled like death. And I was like, oh, okay, this is really bad. And sadly he, to him, the smell, the look, the pus coming out of it was totally normal. And I mean, he's usually covered in picky scratches and bruises, but this was a different level. And thankfully we got him to the doctor and he had to get it packed and cleaned. It was awful. Um, but that's just one of the things is the picking, the bruising. Uh, you know, if you're a spinner or a hand flapper, you run into stuff all the time. Another thing is oral fixation. So oral fixation is another really common thing that you'll see, especially with uh, younger intellectually disabled kids. That's people whose IQ would be lower than 68. Our, you know, most people's IQs is 90 and above. If you're intellectually disabled, you're, you're on the lower end. 
an oral fixation is where you'll take a common item and you'll stick it in your mouth. And it can be very quickly. And it could be something sitting on a tray that you sat down right next to them and then bam, it's in their mouth. And you're like, no, you just ate a Band-Aid. <laughs> um, that's very, very common. So that's not, quick. that's not like a... Um... Uh, like a sucking mechanism that uh, like a baby sucking his or her thumb. That's more, I need to put something in my mouth of any variety because the feeling of object in mouth. Yes. Satisfies X one. Yeah. Um, it's a choking hazard too. It is. And, uh, another, if they're already hurt. Yeah. I have a horror story of one of my friends with autism. He, we made these little robots and we used him out of little sponges and he went, took it home and he apparently wanted to glue something down, but he used hot glue and then he stuck it on the other side of his chin. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and it was, it was bad. So pretty much the whole skin came off, but he wanted to feel it and it was innocent, but it, it, it was like that. I mean the guilt, gosh, the guilt. Um, because you know, I'm the person that totally put this all together and then I was like, great. Right. Oh, wow. So how do you tell the difference between an, an, uh, um, a non autistic child who is under distress and freaked out because they just got into, let's say a horrible accident. Um, and so is therefore not acting normal and maybe yeah. wants to hug their binky or maybe is suddenly sucking their thumb because they just went through some trauma versus a child who's, um, who this is the, the characterization of their normal behavior. I would say voice inflection is always my biggest go-to of figuring out when someone is on the spectrum. It's not always uh, obvious. It can be very subtle, but anytime somebody has an increasingly monotone voice, even in a very scary situation, I would, that's always something I start to be more aware of. Um, also my friends with, with autism have something called special interest. Special interest can vary. A lot of times it, it, it's something that they're really passionate about. Um, and if your patient starts randomly spouting off facts about the Titanic, um, or, bringing you into a world of fantasy or, uh, you know, that might be a cue that, okay, we might be uh, dealing with something a little different and that's okay. Uh, what would you, in a perfect world, what would you recommend? Or would you like to see nurses do once they go, Ooh, I think this, this patient is on the spectrum. Um, I, here's my list of ABC th things that I yeah. should do in order to best treat this patient. Um, I would go immediately to the toolkit and that's, you can put the toolkit anywhere. Um, the toolkit is a little box, especially, and honestly, even kids who aren't on the spectrum, uh, benefit from the toolkit, uh, especially after a traumatic incident. Um, the toolkit, pull it out. I usually offer two choices from the toolkit of, Hey, I, you seem upset or you seem scared or nervous. Can, would you like to choose one of these things to hold or, or do while, while we talk? Sadly, I have many students who don't know that they have autism. And that makes me sad because I think you empower someone when you say, hey, you have autism, but that's not the end of life. That's actually the beginning of life for you. So this is what we can do with it. Um, but 
I understand a lot of parents' reasons to hold off. It can lead to other things, bullying, but I, I sadly, some kids might not even know that they have autism. So asking them outright, it may be beneficial for no one. So the toolkit, at least autism or no autism, can get you started on what can I do to help calm you down. And I call the some of the tools the third-party influencer of while you're doing this with your hands, you're going to be more willing to talk to me. And I might actually get more out of you than I would if you were sitting here staring into space or, um, or being terrified out of your mind. So let's do this. Let's go to, let's go to some of the other diagnoses and talk about them like we have with autism. And then as we start talking about the toolkit, this is just my brainstorm and y'all tell me what you think. How about if I describe some of the interventions that we would have to do in an ER? So for instance, starting an IV, drawing blood, putting the EKG leads on and hooking them up to wires and the you know, squeezing their arm with a blood pressure cup. And then you can tell me how different things in the toolkit or different, how would you approach a, a, a child with autism for each of those things? How would you approach a child with ADHD to try to draw labs or get a blood pressure? How would you approach a child with ODD with each of those things? Um, what do you think about that? That sounds great. Okay. Yeah, that sounds so let, let's talk about these other diagnoses kind of in a general sense, like some of the things that you would see and some of the do's and don'ts. And then let's go like really specific what things we would be doing. And then like I like the thing that you said in the toolkit about let's try to keep noises to a minimum. Let's turn off the lights and sirens if possible, like those yeah. kinds of things. We can talk specific Um and then we will pull out the toolkit and say, put this in their hands while you're starting the IV or, or whatever. Yeah. Can I, can I um, interject a question before that? So, and which make, might make it easier to approach this portion of the, of the conversation. If you were forced to categorize um, autistic patients into, say, three general categories, um, would would you be able to do that so that you could say, um, okay, well, uh, this type of patient generally falls under this large portion of the umbrella and they generally present this way, whereas this type of patient will present this way? Does um, autism, ADHD, and ODD, would those be three types of categories that you might be able to sift them into, knowing full well that there's that the spectrum is very variegated and that yeah. it doesn't neatly capture everyone. Is there a way to try to sort them into buckets so that when an, an ER nurse has moments to try to make an assessment um, of a patient, they can say, okay, well, I think that they're most likely fall into this bucket, in which case these are the approaches I would most likely take. Yeah, I would say y yes. Um, and I would say those are three great categories. Uh, a pairing of autism is ADHD. Um, a lot of times they'll present very similar in a very similar way. Uh, that's why I say the monotone voice is usually my cue. Um, and I would actually treat them very much uh, alike. Uh, whereas oppositional defiant disorder, your pediatric bipolar, they're in a whole nother, they're in a whole nother bucket. Okay, that's very helpful. All right, great. Yeah. So that's like two one general the, buckets that we can play with. Yeah. yeah. 
One of the things that you mentioned about stemming behavior is kind of a cue to maybe how an autistic uh, a person or a child with autism is feeling that maybe they're feeling anxious and they're doing some self-soothing. Is there a similar cue with a, a child who has ADD or ADHD? Is there something that a behavior that they would show or a thing that they would do that might cue you in that they're feeling stressed or that they're upset? Agitated movement. Um, I would say the majority of students that have ever had that have had the really severe case would be agitated movement or verbal aggression. Just mouthy, asking a thousand questions. Uh, a lot of times it'll be very anxious, um, almost like you can't even get a word in. Um, it's usually bringing them down a little bit to the point you can even ask those questions. Okay. All so right. what's a good intervention for that? Um, I usually have a nonverbal card, uh, and it's always red. Uh, you, you hold, and, and I think I read too about people who are colorblind having um, certain colors that they can still see, uh, or at least a shade, a shadow of it. So I usually will just hold up a red card. I don't even say anything, and then um, another one is I'll hold up five. And then I, I don't say anything. And then once I get to the fifth, I'll say, okay, it's my turn. And that's a countdown of, okay, I hear you. And now we're done. Let me interject So listeners here. are, uh, Brittany is <laughs> holding up five fingers. This is a yes. verbal medium, not, an, not a visual one. She's holding up five fingers <laughs> and counting <laughs> down like a mother holding her hand yeah. up in front of a little kid saying, I, you've got to the count of five to stop throwing your temper tantrum which is exactly. basically what you do with a, with a toddler. So exactly. you would take the same sort of patient approach and uh, to allow uh, yes. a, a child who's uh, the time to, to, to find their center or as much of their center as they can. I would say really intense uh, ADHD is a toddler in the toy section of Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that when they're being super hyperverbal and you're doing no talking and just the hand motion only, that that is pretty powerful, you know. Oh, it is, and it's control. You still have five seconds to finish whatever it is that you want to say to me. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. You're not just and cutting you're them done. off. You're not just interrupting them, but you're giving yeah. them the respect to to try to wrap it up for themselves. Yes. So if it doesn't work in five seconds, do you start over again? Just, uh, just. Um, I'll do it usually one more time. And then you can always try a, a proximity, a just coming closer and saying, you know, asking that icebreaker question of, hey, do you know what color my shirt is? That's usually anything to divert the attention into something that you want to talk about. And that's your gate, your gate question. How much more complicated it must be if that child is in pain, though, like like physical yeah. pain and has gone through a terrible, terrible shock. Um, wow. Okay, so let's let's look at uh, the epidemiology of uh, of these patients and and what we would do to best help them if they present themselves in the ER. So for the ADD or ADHD child, if we're assessing them and we're looking at them physically or their medications or whatever, are there other things that we would be looking at for them? Other ways that they would physically present. Yes, very thin. A lot of um, medications for ADHD cause suppressed appetite. Um, A lot of my students are very, very slim. It's always like that. Um, Especially if they're unmedicated, you'd actually see the opposite. 
you would see a bigger person because they have less impulse control. Um, but if you're on medication, you are very trim. Almost, you would almost wonder, are you eating? And then you you would be a little worried about that. Do those medications, um, this might be too technical, but in terms of like um, counterindications for any standard medications that would be issued in the ER if they're under trauma, that might be something to look into whether or not. Yeah. Uh, like uh, we talk about uh, rocuronium and what are some of the other fun ones? Nisa? <laughs> I only remember Rocky Ronian because it's a really cool name. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like that is a really cool name. <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of the common ADD medicines have a lot of contraindications for the stuff that we would be giving. Yeah. Is there any anything else for ADD or ADHD students or children that we need to be aware of as far as things to look for or interventions to use? The biggest intervention is proximity and uh, setting really clear, defined expectations of the room. Like, I'm here to do this, this, and this, so let's start first this, then this. Using first then is, uh, is teacher language, but it gives them an idea of what's coming next so that their, their desire to be impulsive, it, it comes down a little bit. I would always also lay out, please don't touch anything. <laughs> okay. I like first um, then. It's good. Yeah. Would it, if if possible, is it helpful to try to uh, again? This may not be possible in the ER. Uh, Nisa, and you can tell me that to try to assign a particular nurse to providing them with merely that information, so that the rest of the team can do the actual healthcare work. Uh, we talk about. Um, I'm thinking about having a family presence at the bedside, Nisa, and um, that you assign a nurse to to uh, stay with a family member if a family member is there while their loved one is coding in the ER. If you have the personnel for something like that, would you have the personnel, even if it's not a nurse that's specifically trained to work with a special population like autism, but one who knows that their job while this uh, patient is in the ER is to be there to watch for stemming or to uh, hold up the red card or to tell them this, then that. Um, is that something that's possible? So this is a really great question. And there is a um, intervention kind of theory um, where when you have a lot of chaotic things going on, like for instance, if we were running a trauma code and there were six or eight or 10 people in the room with this one child, um, um, and there's a lot of chaos going on. And this is, this is for any pediatric patient. You would assign either a child life specialist, for instance, or the primary nurse to be the one person who talks to the child. So there's not a lot of voices, a lot of people talking over each other, a lot of faces in their face. Um, you'd have the one person while other people do things quietly to be the one that says first, then this is what's happening. Call them by their name. If you know that, that they have an autism spectrum disorder to maybe avoid the eye contact, it's a really, really great way, uh, intervention to use on any child. You can use it on adults. You can use it on adults with psychiatric issues. You can use it on folks who are in a, a lot of pain that you're having a lot of a trouble 
kind of directing instead of everyone yelling all at the same time and trying to get their attention or everybody talking over each other and asking the same question. You have one person that they can focus on who is asking the questions or giving the information. This would be really key, I think, in this population. I think it's a great, a great intervention, a great strategy. Absolutely. Okay. So um, now let's talk about your oppositional defiant disorder and your bipolar schizophrenic. And one thing that I can tell you about this, um, this population of patients is not from the trauma end, certainly from the trauma end, but we see these patients um, in the ER already when they have acute psychiatric um, exacerbations. And for me, this is one of the most frustrating populations because there are such limited resources for pediatric psychiatric. There are very few inpatient beds um, available to them. And so they end up in the emergency room for long periods of time, which is not a great place for them. It's not, not what an emergency room is set up for. Um, it's very frustrating for them. It's frustrating for their families. It's frustrating for the staff. Uh, a lot of times they come in just simply because of caregiver strain. Their family is exacerbated, you know, with their behavior or with some recent event that has happened. And so they don't have any other um, idea what to do. So they bring them to the emergency room. And so um, so that's, that's some of the experience that emergency nurses have with um, pediatric bipolar, pediatric schizophrenia. Um, even oppositional defiant disorder, but let's talk about them on a on a on a more day to day, or so so kind of describe to us what we could be looking for, what kind of behavior we would see in them if they were feeling stress, or um, some of the interventions that might be good to to use up with uh, if they were if if we were working with them. What would be some some good tips? Um. A cool thing is you talk about what they, how they come into the emergency room and how they have to sit there for a long time. Sometimes uh, it's usually the school, or like you said, or the family that ends up sitting them because they're having an episode at school that lasts beyond a certain point. We have to call the parent. The parent doesn't know what to do, so they go to the hospital. Um, some of the things that we try here are weighted items, Weighted blankets, lap blankets, weighted plush toys. That's a really big, um, very soothing, very calming. Well, hell, I love a weighted blanket. I was about to say. <laughs> so do my I. Husband, my husband sleeps with a weighted blanket every night. Um, <laughs> uh, one thing that is really cool are noise-canceling headphones. Um, I would say that... Uh, blocking out some of the other noises that you're hearing inside of the emergency room since you're going to be there for a while can be very, very helpful. Also, anything fidget-wise, small fidgets, uh, in the toolkit I have a link that goes to my top 10 favorite ones that I recommend. Um, They're a really cool way to keep their hands busy so that the anxiety that they're feeling is not really, really high. Sadly, uh, especially pediatric bipolar, if you're having a really intense manic episode, uh, sometimes sedation is the only thing that is helpful, which makes me sad. Um, but you know, sometimes being, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but once they're sedated, 
bringing something to them like a fidget or the lap blanket is really, really beneficial. Oppositional and defiant disorders are usually your aggressive ones. They'll come in fighting, biting, kicking, screaming. So sadly, they also tend to have to be sedated really quickly in order to get them down to a point that you can even be helpful. Or you have the ones that they left school doing that behavior. By the time they're in the emergency room, they're being perfect because they've gotten what they wanted. <laughs> they got to leave school and go get to talk to these cool nurses and doctors and they're loving it. Um, so, so in my toolkit, I definitely highly recommend anything weighted. And uh, the biggest thing is making sure that the things that you're giving to them, I always set out the expectations of how it should be used and that they can't keep it. And that it does have to come back to me, but I want you to borrow it for right now. That's a very good point to start off yes. by letting them know this <laughs> mm-hmm. is for you to yes. play with for now. Right. That's this is not for you to keep. Sadly, I would say your frustration is my frustration when it comes to this population. I think people underestimate manic episodes, and I think it's really hard to imagine a child going through a manic episode, but it definitely happens. Imagine that happening starting in a classroom where you strip butt naked and do some crazy things. And I mean, it, it, it's pretty scary what that can look like. And then doesn't that, does it, so my frame of reference is what happens in triage when we have a long, long wait and we have one person that gets very upset and disgruntled and starts getting very fussy and loud and complaining. It becomes like a ripple effect and other people start getting very loud and they start complaining as well. And then it becomes just everyone. So in your classroom, when one of your students starts having sort of a meltdown or episode, does it impact the other students the same way? Do they all start sort of feeling this anxiety or do they start? Yes, absolutely. I I would call it the ripple effect. I mean, absolutely, like it just ripples out to the rest of the classroom. Something that I have is, it's not seclusion necessarily as much as it is finding that quiet space. I have found, especially for my ODD kids and my, honestly, any of, any of my kids, ODD, but pediatric bipolar, especially a quiet, dark place to sit is very, very helpful. I even cleaned out a cabinet once and I put like a little light in there and pillows and a blanket. They just go in there and I just leave them alone until it's time to, for it to work calm. So minimal stimulation and they can Min- just take as a minimal stimulation as you can. Cause half the anxiety and agitation and complaining, whining is simply, uh, I'm not just tired of waiting here. I'm agitated and stressed and I'm, I'm anxious about what's going to happen. Got it. So, you know, turning those lights down in that little cubicle, uh, offering the noise-canceling headphones and a weighted blanket, good to go. Okay, so this, I think, is a great place for us to stop the first half of this uh, segment of interviews that we're doing about this special population. Uh, Let's take a break here and come back next time so we can talk about the toolkit that we've been hinting at all this time um, and what you can do if you don't have the toolkit in front of you, how you can use... Uh, everyday items to fulfill the needs of the toolkit when you're treating the special population. What do you think about that? Yeah, so we're going to come back with Brittany and talk specifics on what we're going to do in the ER um, using some 
interventions, some tools, and how to best treat these pediatric patients in our ER. Sounds great. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, Brittany. Thanks. Awesome.